One day, I'm just going to come up here with my mic on and just ready to go. Lord, help us. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word, even when it challenges us, even when we have a hard time wrapping our minds around what it is teaching us. So Lord, I I pray, I ask about your spirit that you would move in our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would help us to behold Jesus and his goodness. And Lord, I pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, this last week I listened to a podcast in which an author, a man named Mitchell S. Jackson, was interviewed. And he talked about his mom. Uh, He said that when he was in his 20s, he learned that his mom was getting on a bus or a train twice a week and going to a place that would stick a needle in her arm and take a pint of blood. Uh, They would take the plasma and give her back everything else and give her $25 to $35 per pint. She did this about twice a week because she needed the cash. And of course, this was troubling to Mitchell because this isn't the sort of thing that anyone wants to hear about their mothers having to do. And it took him a few years, but as soon as he had the money to step in and help her out, Mitchell offered to help his mom so that she wouldn't have to do that anymore. And she turned him down, partly out of a desire to not want to put him out, uh, partly out of a desire to maintain her independence, but mostly, she said, because she saw what she was doing as a way that she could help other people out. Yes, she was receiving funds for her efforts, but... It was a way for her to give to someone else. She felt that it was her duty to look out for the next person, and she got a great deal of satisfaction from that. And Mitchell said that his mother was just one of those people who would do anything for other people. Uh, He he gave an example. He said that there was one month where she had $100 to last her the entire month, but she learned that one of her other sons, one of Mitchell's brothers, didn't have any food in the fridge, and so she promptly gave him $80. That's the type of person that she was or that she is. So when it came to giving blood, Mitchell said, and I'm quoting him here, she was just thinking, I'm giving a part of me which is sacred for the benefit of someone else. And this line stuck out to me. Here on this non-religious NPR podcast, they recognize that there is something sacred about blood, about what it represents, the gift of life. And we see that very clearly in this text as the blood of the lamb is God's appointed means of protection. We're jumping in here in Exodus 12, which describes for us the very first Passover, a day with a lot of meaning and significance for both Jews and Christians. And we're looking at this passage as a part of a series that we're doing through the season of Lent. Uh, Lent is a time where the, the church universal remembers the fact that we are dust, as, Gen- as God tells Adam in the book of Genesis, dust you are and to dust you shall return. Now this wasn't an inherent part of Adam's nature as a creature, but it was the result of Adam's sin. And so in this season of Lent, we recognize that we are dust as a result of our sins. So we reflect on that and we mourn it, but we do so with this anticipatory hope of the events of Good Friday and ultimately Easter. 
where God took the, the punishment that our sin deserves and then defeated sin and death definitively by raising Jesus from the dead. So once again, today we are looking at the Passover, which is part of a larger narrative in which God was judging the people of Egypt for enslaving and oppressing his people. He sent 10 plagues, which were 10 acts of judgment against the Egyptians. And the Passover is part of the very last plague. And all of these actions were brought on the people of Egypt by their sin, by the injustice and oppression they had perpetrated against the Israelites, God's people. God would not stand idly by as that went on. But God in his grace also provides a way of escape. He did so through a sacrifice, a sacrifice which points to the ultimate one that he planned on our behalf. This story points forward to the story of Jesus. And and again, this is what we're doing through the series of Lent. We're recognizing the fact that the entire Bible is ultimately telling one story about Jesus. So the Passover is a shadow of the cross. So I want to begin by, by looking at this passage in Exodus 12 by first setting the scene. So we're going to take some time to do that. So just to get us all up to speed, I don't know if you're remembering all of the events of Exodus, and if you're not, it's okay. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna walk through that together. All right, so the Israelites are God's people, and when we encounter them in Exodus 12, they are in the land of Egypt. Now, initially, when the Israelites went into Egypt, their time there was good. They had been led there by one of their own, a man named Joseph, who, despite being an Israelite, managed to become the second most powerful ruler in the kingdom. And he moves his family into Egypt to settle there, and God blesses and multiplies them. Well, generations pass, rulers come and go, and eventually a pharaoh, which is just an Egyptian name for king, comes to power who did not remember Joseph and he did not like the Israelites. In fact, he saw them as a threat and he made several attempts to either break or eventually kill them. First, he started with an attempt to break them. He subjected them to harsh labor and to slavery. But that plan backfired, as Exodus 1.12 tells us. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. He then tries to convince two righteous women, uh, midwives by the name of Shifra and Puah, to kill the Hebrew boys that they helped to deliver. But this didn't work either, as we're told in Genesis 1, or excuse me, Exodus 1.17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Well, Pharaoh's last attempt to snuff out the Israelites comes in the form of an edict. He said, Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh said, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. But ironically, this edict brings the man God intended to use, Moses, into Pharaoh's own household. See, Moses' mother, when he was three months old, creates a little basket, which is also called an ark, and in obedience to Pharaoh's command, she places him in the basket and then pushes him down the Nile where he's seen and taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. He is then raised by her as a son in Pharaoh's household. 
Well, more years pass and a new Pharaoh comes and takes the throne, but his attitude towards the people of God hasn't changed. He continues to deal harshly with and oppress the Israelites. And so God appoints Moses. He calls him from a burning bush and says, I'm going to use you to rescue my people. And Moses bravely says, send someone else, please. Well, eventually God convinces him and and he goes into Pharaoh and he, with his brother, issues this command or relays this command to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And what is Pharaoh's response? But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And the key issue, the reason for Pharaoh's disobedience and the reason that he and his predecessor were willing to act with such evil, to perpetrate such injustice, was their refusal to acknowledge God. Instead, they they had set themselves up in the place of God. And my notes are are disappearing right before my eyes. That's only minorly stressful. Don't worry, it's okay. Uh, Excuse me. We're going to do this. And we're going to do this. And they're together again. All is well. Thank you. Thank you, technology. Um, Now I just got to find where I was. This is no big deal. Um, So, yeah, here we go. So the key issue at hand was the fact that Pharaoh refused to acknowledge God and it had instead set himself up in the place of God. And, and this was a part of Egyptian religion at the time. There's a 20th century Egyptologist who has this word to say about the monarchy. He said the monarchy was as old as the world for the creator himself had assumed kingly office on the day of creation. Pharaoh was his descendant and his successor. And you see Pharaoh's belief in his own divinity and his exchange with Moses and Aaron in chapter five. See, in verse one, when Moses and Aaron are relaying God's command to Pharaoh, look at how they frame it. They say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. They are relaying the word of God to Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh began to give his order a little bit later in the narrative, look at how he frames it. This is what Pharaoh says. And you can see them side by side here. This is what the Lord, uh, this, is, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. This is what Pharaoh says. He is elevating himself to the status of God. And, and this is the issue at the heart of the conflict. Right? Who is the one that gets to be God? Who is the one that gets to call the shots? Who is the one that has ultimate authority? And I think deep down, this is the core issue within every human heart. Who gets to be in charge? Who gets to call the shots? Who gets to be God? Is it me? Or is it the actual God? And this question is vitally important. Why? Well, I think the answer is, is helpfully summarized in the New City Catechism. Um, catechisms, if you're not familiar with them, they're, they're tools that the church has used for centuries to help teach biblical truths. And in them, these truths are presented in a question and answer format. 
So the New City Catechism, question 16, asks the question, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Turning away from God, placing ourselves in in, in his position, it leads to breakdown. I heard one pastor describe this idea with reference to our solar system. Uh, So the sun, I believe, is at the center of our solar system. And our solar system works if everything orbits around the sun. If at some point the earth stopped orbiting around the sun, well, that would lead to huge problems. Well, let's say that the earth was sentient and it decided like, no, I, I want to be at the center of the universe and everything should orbit around me. Sounds very much like us, doesn't it? Well, what would ensue death and the disintegration of all creation? We were made to orbit around God, and when we try to reverse that order, it leads to death, it leads to evil, it leads to oppression and injustice. And this is evident in Egypt. Pharaoh had put himself in the place of God and things were disintegrating around him. And as a result, death and oppression reigned. And when we get to this point in the story in Exodus 12, God has had enough. And And so he chose to demonstrate the effects of what Pharaoh was doing by sending these 10 plagues. So now let's take a look at the plagues. There we go. Now, we looked at this passage a little over a year ago, and when we did so, we framed the 10 plagues as 10 acts of decreation. Again, illustrating what was happening when Pharaoh tried to put himself in the place of God. And I think that is how the author of Genesis, or excuse, the author of Exodus is framing it. And there are all sorts of callbacks throughout the plague narratives to Genesis 1 and 2, showing how what's happening in, in the book of Exodus with the sending of the 10 plagues is unraveling the work that God has done. So that is one way to view what is happening here. And you can see this in an example of that. See, in a In Genesis 1, God spends seven days creating the world, during which time he speaks ten times to create. And here in Exodus, he speaks in Acts ten times to decreate. And all of this was done so that both the Israelites and Egyptians would know that the Lord is God. And this phrase is repeated seven times throughout the plague narratives. So again, that is one way to understand what is happening. God is unraveling the work of creation, demonstrating what happens when a ruler tries to put themselves in the place of God. Another thing that is also going on, though, is that God is showing the complete inadequacy of the gods that we try to erect in his place. So when God turns the Nile to blood, he shows his power over the various river gods, such as Apis and Isis in Egypt. The frog plague, it shows his power over Heket, the goddess of birth, represented in Egypt with a frog head. The gnats show God as powerful over Set, the god of desert storms. The flies in darkness seem to be targeted at Re, the sun god. 
The death of the livestock show the, impot- show the impotence of Hathor, the goddess with a cow head, and Apis, once again, who is represented by a bull, a symbol of fertility. The boils are targeted at Sekhmet, the goddess with power over disease, and Sunu, the pestilence god, and Isis, once again, who is the healing goddess. And the plagues of hail and locusts seem to be targeting Nut, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. And all of this brings us to the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn, which is a direct assault against the man Pharaoh who would put himself in the place of God. And with this final act of judgment, God declares in verse 12 of our text, I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. Now, it's worth noting that before any of the plagues, God warned Pharaoh of exactly what would happen if he refused to listen. In Exodus chapter 4, he declares, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God is abundantly clear about the consequences of not listening to him. But despite this clear warning and his demonstration of his power throughout the other nine plagues, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. Despite the fact that his world and kingdom are disintegrating around him, He wants to hang on to his sense of rule, his own sense of divinity. Now, now in contrast to Pharaoh's utter lack of mercy in Exodus 1, where he just wants to wipe out all of the Israelites indiscriminately, God provides a way for the Egyptians to escape judgment. He tells Moses that anyone who listens to his warning and obeys him by sacrificing a lamb and putting the blood on the doorposts of their houses, anyone who does that, will be spared. This means of salvation wasn't exclusive to Jews. It was available to Egyptians as well. Those who were willing to trust in the God who had made his name and his power known through the previous nine plagues. And this might account for the mixed crowd that's mentioned in Exodus 12, 38. All right, so with all of that in mind, Let's now take a look at the 10th plague and its significance. Let's look at the Passover together. Now, this final plague, like the ones that preceded it, highlight the significance of sin. Now, while we've grown comfortable with sin, while we've grown accustomed to it, the reality that the Bible teaches over and over again is that sin requires sacrifice, that sin brings death, it requires blood. Now, this is something that that rubs against our explicit modern sensibilities. And I think in a lot of ways, this reality makes us uncomfortable. Many of us look at passages like Exodus 12 and and see them as primitive and archaic. We like to think of ourselves as having evolved past such ideas. But I don't think that that is at all the case uh, for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, our obsession with blood hasn't gone anywhere. Um, A while back, I I read a a story of a production of Shakespeare's play Titus Andronicus that involved so much blood on stage that sometimes dozens of people passed out. Like, 
over and over and over again. And one of the producers of the play said that during one show, there are 43 people in the audience that passed out at the sight of all the blood that was on stage. And you would think that perhaps knowing that would cause people to stop going to the play, but no, it became so much more popular as a result. So our obsession with blood hasn't gone anywhere. But more importantly, our desire for justice hasn't gone anywhere either. See, we recognize that sin has consequences and we want people who have done wrong to be held accountable. I read an article in the, in the New York Times a while back by the philosopher David Bentley Hart about uh, Quentin Tarantino and his films, um, his film specifically, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was nominated for uh, Best Picture in 2019. This was one of a few different Tarantino movies that imagines an alternative history in which the bad guys are stopped and they get what's coming to them. And in this particular film, it's the, the Manson family who is violently killed before they're able to perpetrate their own acts of violence. And Hart sees these films, this philosopher talking about him, sees these films even with their gore and violence as striking a chord because they, quote, get at a moral longing for the total cosmic justice that history rarely embodies. See, Tarantino is able to have success in, in putting these types of films out there because to a point we want to see bad guys, quote unquote bad guys, you know, we're all bad guys. We want to see people held accountable. Because deep down we know that sin hurts, that sin leads to death and disintegration. We have a longing for justice. And so while we might think of ourselves as having moved past this, there's something deep within us that knows, no, justice has to be met. We know that sin creates a debt and that debt requires a sacrifice. And I think that it just goes to show that deep down, like even, if, even when we explicitly deny this, we can't fully move away from it. And so when God said that he was going to visit the land in judgment, the people are given a choice, right? The wages of sin is death. Death is required. And God says that it can be yours or it can be that of a substitute. And God in his grace provides a substitute. The people could be saved by the blood of a lamb. And that lamb would provide a covering over the house. The innocence of the lamb would cover the guilt of the people. The story and the way that it's being told is a callback to the story that we looked at last week in Abraham, uh, excuse me, in Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. In that passage, God gives Abraham this impossible task. He is to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. And Abraham is crushed at the request, but nevertheless, he understands what the Bible goes on to say in Numbers 3.13, that the life of the firstborn is forfeit because of the sins of the family. Remember, the, the, the firstborn represented the family. So Abraham obeys He knows that God is just, but he also knows that God is gracious and merciful. So while they are on their way, Isaac, being rather perceptive, looks to Abraham and he says, my father, and he replied, here I am, my son. 
Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. And as you might remember from last week, that is exactly what happened. God stays Abraham's hand and he provides a ram for the sacrifice. He provides a, stub, he provides a substitute. And in the Passover narrative, what we see here in Exodus 12, once again, God in his grace provides a substitute. The destroyer is set to come. Anyone who has sinned, so everyone deserves what the destroyer is bringing because we all, like Pharaoh, have put ourselves in one way or another in the place of God. I used this quote recently from John Stott, but it's a powerful reminder. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. We all have the tendency to think that we know what is best, that we are in control, that things would be better if we could truly be free to direct events as we see fit. But again, what happens when we put ourselves in the place of God? As we talked about earlier, disintegration, death, Maybe not literal, but perhaps the death of relationships. And imagine if you had the power to make happen all of the evil things that go through your mind. Our God complexes can and often do have real and ugly consequences. But God in his mercy provides a way out. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but Stott goes on to say, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Our passage this morning about the first Passover is a shadow of, of the ultimate reality. The blood of the lamb in Exodus points, points us forward to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, who would offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And what does this communicate to us? What does this tell us about our God? It tells us of his incredible love. Again, like deep down we know the wages of sin. We know that something is not right. We know that something's not right with us. We know that something's not right with the world. We want a covering. And God, out of his incredible love, gave us his only son, whom he loved, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could inherit, so we could receive an inheritance, not of perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb that is unblemished and spotless. Right. That is true cosmic justice. That is the justice that we all long for. Now, throughout the year, um, Katie and I basically watch zero movies um, because we have a six-year-old and a soon-to-be four-year-old, and by the time we put them to bed, a movie sounds exhausting. Uh, so that is, that is our MO for... Uh, 10 months out of the year until the Academy Award nominations come out. And then we're like, we need to, we need to figure out how to become cultured in the next two months. Um, so we, we usually make a mad dash to watch all of the movies that we can. To, typically, we limit ourselves to the movies that are nominated for, for Best Picture or Best Documentary. 
And uh, so we're, we're in the middle of that right now. Uh, I think the Academy Awards are next week, something like that. Anyway, uh, so we've been, we've been rapidly consuming all of these films. And there's one in particular this year that, that stuck out to me. Uh, it's a movie called The, the Holdovers. And it's a, it's a powerful movie. And at the very climax, I'm not going to ruin it for you, don't worry. At the very climax of the movie, though, there is this substitutionary sacrifice. And it struck me that, that this is a narrative that we see played out over and over and over again through all of, or through so many movies that our culture holds dear. Movies, books, plays, right? A Tale of Two Cities, we have substitution at the very heart of it. Les Miserables, we have substitution at the very heart of it. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, right? We have substitution at the very heart of it. But seriously though, we see this all over the place, all the time, stories of sacrifice and redemption. And why is that? It's because it's the story that's at the very heart of creation. Again, we know deep down that we need a substitute. Our sin is serious. We cannot ignore it. It requires sacrifice. But God in his grace has provided a way of escape. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? the spotless Lamb who has redeemed you with his precious blood. In this way, God is able to demonstrate both his justice and his mercy, his righteousness and his grace. Right? This is the story at the center of all of the good stories that we tell. This is the story that we need. And at the end of the day, friends, this is a story of God's love, of his love for you, of the mercy that he longs to show you. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you this morning recognizing our need. Um, Lord, I confess my own tendency to try to put myself in the place of God, to try to order things just so. I confess my own tendency to think that, that things would be better if I were in control, but Lord, I, I know deep down that when I have been in control, it has not gone well. Lord, the sin in my heart if I had the authority to do as I saw fit, it would lead to death and disintegration. Father, I have sinned, and my sin needs a covering. So Lord, I thank you this morning, we thank you this morning for the covering that you provided for us in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the weight of our sin and the extent of your grace and mercy. Father, this morning we pray that you would help us to behold the goodness of the gospel, the story that's at the center of scripture, but God, really the story that's at the center of creation. Lord, help us to 
cling to the blood of the Lamb to find our hope and our peace and the covering offered by Jesus. That's in his great name we pray. Amen.